Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at renourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. I'm Kate Yoder. I work as a staff writer at GRIST, where I write about climate change uh, with a focus on language, culture, and history. And you can learn more about this work at grist.org, or you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Kate M. Yoder. This past spring, GRIST magazine reached out to me over email, introducing me to the work of Kate Yoder. They felt like she would be a great guest for season two of Climify. She wrote a lot about climate action. She wrote about climate anxiety, amongst many things. And when I looked at some of the links they sent, I realized I had read Kate Yoder's work before. I really appreciated it, actually. So I had a Zoom call with Kate prior to recording this particular interview, and we hit it off, and she agreed to be on the show. So I'm pretty excited to introduce you to Kate Yoder. I hope you enjoy my interview. Well, welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining me today on the show. Happy to have you here. I've been a fan of Grist probably since I started working in sustainability around 2004, I think. You guys have been around since 99, is that right? Yeah, 99. Yeah, so I've been I've been reading not just your stuff, but other writers' stuff on that blog. It's not a, it's not just a blog, but a, a, a mag online magazine for many years now. It's been a big influence in my work. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. It, I'm, thanks for having me on. Um, it, Gris definitely used to be more of a blog, but it sort of transitioned into a more, more yeah. serious journalistic endeavor in recent years. I remember so it being been... more of a blog, but as the years have gone on, I've noticed, oh, this has really progressed. There's been a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I joined in 2015, which was, you know, it was still like the heart of Blogtown. And so yeah. it's been really fun to be at Grist over those years. And like, as I've grown as a journalist, I've like seen the whole organization kind of go in that direction too. So it's been really exciting. So how, why did you choose journalism? How did you get into journalism? And, and why do you write about climate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my background is in writing and visual art. Um, so I guess sort of fitting for a design podcast, but yeah, what kind of visual art did you do? Um, well, I do watercolor mixed media, sort of almost like inspired by collage or sometimes with oh, like, I've like, you know, taken apart tea bags and like plastered them on like watercolor paintings and just these sort of like multi-layered sort of nature inspired, um, pieces. And, you know, I've done ceramics and other things over the years, but more recently, watercolor. Fine arts and studio art seem to be your passion. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and nature too, because you said nature was a part of your art. Yeah, I sort of have, it's hard to describe, but I do these paintings of almost like, uh, like disembodied, like chunks of animals that are like split mm. across the, the page. Um, and it's, it has like a lot of like white space and I don't know, it's like a, I don't even know how to describe it. I can send you a picture if you want. <laughs> I'd love that, actually. 
Mm-hmm. Do you have it online anywhere too? Um, I mean, I have some on like private Instagram accounts, uh, but I think I have a couple on okay. that I might have, but I, I can just send you some photos. Afterward. We won't send them to your private Instagram account because okay. it's private <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But your, your major was in journalism. Was that true? Yeah. Well, it was in English writing technically and a double major in, um, visual art. And in general, I always wanted to have a creative job. I definitely need to be making things. Um, that's sort of, you know, where I'm happiest. Mm-hmm. And I had this opportunity to intern at Grist in 2015, which was really interesting for me because I'd had this growing interest in environmental issues, especially over the course of college. Um, and, you know, I noticed that like, interesting, all of my friends are environmental science majors. Maybe there's something there. And so by the end of college, I was really, you know, looking for a chance to use writing, which was sort of, you know, one of my strongest skills and one of the things I was really interested in, um, in like around environmental issues. And so I had this opportunity to intern at Grist and I was like, this is sort of like, you know, I'd taken a couple journalism classes in college and that sort of thing, but I didn't think of it as like a super creative endeavor, but Grist had this like sense of humor and this like unique perspective. And so I was like, wow, this is like a chance to learn about journalism and environmental issues and also like work on, you know, what I consider to be one of the most pressing issues of our time, climate change, um, especially you know, looking at like the long term of where the world is heading and like how we'll look back on this moment. So yeah, I found that I actually like journalism. I <laughs> never thought I was actually like heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. But um I really appreciate the chance to do like magazine style features and you know kind of identify trends that are happening that maybe you know kind of go unnoticed or people don't really think about them that much um and just research and writing i've i pay a lot of attention to details and language so that's sort of how i got started do you have a favorite piece you did uh most recently i did this feature i I call it true cost but essentially what it's looking at is how people started talking about climate change as an economic problem so the gist, the gist of it is that, you know, in the early 90s, um, fossil fuel companies and, you know, other industries started paying economists to do these studies that would look at climate change policies that were being proposed and look at how much is this going to cost the economy. So they would look at it and say, like, this will put, you know, this will cause a 2% dip in GDP by like 2011 or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, and then you know, these, these economic analyses were really, uh, really focused just on the costs and they didn't look at, you know, the benefits of taking climate action or like the costs of heating up the planet where you have like disasters unfolding in agriculture and stronger hurricanes and, you know, all these things like across the world that have like a huge economic toll. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So my piece was looking at like the ways that you know, we still talk about climate change, especially in politics, um, as like something that's going to cost our economy and politicians are always considering the cost of it and not looking at this flip side and how like economists are trying to fill in those gaps and, you know, tell a truer story about what the costs of climate inaction are. Yeah. I kind of feel like with that, um, that politics really isn't going to be leading the way on, on climate, <laughs> that, it, that it seems to be like, 
the other green will make a, change a lot of people's hearts and minds in the business sector, insurance sector. Like we can't insure these Florida homes down there anymore. Right. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Is that something that you uncovered when you were uh, writing that? Um, I don't know if I focus specifically on that in the story, but I do think there's sort of a, a feedback loop that happens where it is like, uh, you know, business interests can definitely drive change often like a little bit later than maybe everyone wanted, but right. a little bit, a little bit uh, slow. <laughs> yeah. But that's definitely something that politics as we know today responds to. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm wondering you're as a writer and an artist, which I consider myself as well. Um, I find the writing process to be a little bit like the creative artistic process. Um, do you, do you have the kind of a similar process for both or are they very different? Hmm, That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely similarities, like, you know, you have to have some kind of starting point and, um, I mean, my, the art that I work on is very process oriented. So Mm. I'll like sort of have some ideas of elements that I want to include, but it changes as I like put it together and, you know, see what pieces fit, fit where and like make sure the balance is correct. And I mean, there's definitely a similar thing with writing where I take an idea and I investigate it and it goes in like a direction I probably didn't expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I like somehow have to sit back and make you know, this article that I've written some cohesive whole that actually (laughs) makes sense to people and has like, all the right like spices and the right places to keep people interested, but also, you know, the balance of like facts and, and other things. So, I mean, yeah, I, I could see it. I could see my articles as like a composition, but they're definitely not as visually appealing unless our <laughs> graphic designer <laughs> comes in and like works some magic. Oh yeah. Then, then it, then it's all gorgeous on the screen. <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, so there, there's some, I think some similarities there. Like I, I think a lot about both before I start them. So I, I find that being a designer before I was a writer, um, helped me become a better writer. Cause I'm okay mm-hmm. with the unknown, like the messiness of writing sometimes where mm-hmm. like you said, I don't know where this is going, but let's, let's see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I, that's a personal interest of mine. And, um, I want to talk more about your writing actually as, as we go on um, Mm -hmm. today, but I'm wondering um, with, with the journalism that you do, um, have you seen an impact of that journalism on the readers? Do you have anyone reached out to you? Have you seen changes out in the world based on the things that you've been reporting on? Yeah. I mean, definitely hints here and there. I, sometimes think of journalism as like, I'm sending my articles out into the void and I don't really know what happens with them. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely, it's like people are sharing things on social media, but you know, knowing what we do about social media right now, like sometimes it started to feel a little bit emptier to me. Um, I agree agree on that. Yes. (laughs) So I think one of my favorite things is just, you know, people like even sources who I start talk to or people message messaging me individually, there's, you know, sort of this sense of, um, you know, they'll say like the story really made an impact on me or like mm-hmm. I'm donating to Grist because one of my articles, like, you know, one of Kate's articles spoke to me in some way. Um, and I've talked to academics who, you know, are using my articles in college courses oh, or, 
Yeah. One time one professor told me the story I wrote about like the rhetoric of how we talk about science and politics had been like the impetus for one of their students like thesis projects. So yeah, like every once in a while I get these like hint, a, a hint of how these things are, you know, being interacted with by people. But I mean, one of the realities I think of being in journalism is that you don't always know like how you, a piece you write gets used or who it affects. And I mean, that, that's okay. Like I don't, I don't have control of it after it's in the world, but it does feel a little bit sometimes like there's like a lack of response because I just don't know how people are interacting with it. Well, I think many of the educators listening to you will um, understand what you're talking about or empathize with with what you're saying there, because (laughs) I think with teaching, it's a very similar thing. There's not that instant gratification of the student at the end of class, thanking you profusely for making their mind grow but maybe mm-hmm. a couple of years later out of your control they'll they'll send you a nice email saying oh my gosh so happy that you were my teacher right um <laughs> so you don't know if you're doing any good right i mean a lot of times you're met with mm-hmm. blank stares in the classroom like you say something that you think is really profound and like gosh you know a lot of time was invested in this and students you know looking at their phone or <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, It's interesting that you talk about instant gratification because that is kind of what it is, right? We're like seeking validation from people. But that's Especially what... On social media, yeah. right? If you're putting your stuff yeah. on social media, it's like, how many likes did you get? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, now sometimes if I like tweet something that actually a lot of people are interacting with, I'm like, maybe that wasn't a great tweet because, <laughs> you know, like I know the things that spread on social media are like outrage and like things that get people's emotions worked up. And like, maybe I should just stick with like the, you know, three people like this and it was just my friends. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they just clicked on the link and read it as opposed to having to retweet it and like it or comment on it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. You don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily become Twitter famous. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. My, my dad had this philosophy. It was part of his parenting philosophy, but he always said, you know, he wouldn't say that he was proud of us. He would say like, oh, you should be proud of yourself oh, for the work good. that you've done. Yeah. So yeah. So at the time I was like, come on, dad, like, just, just say that you liked this, but no, <laughs> he was like making sure that was coming from an internal space. Right. Like you aren't seeking the approval of somebody else that so you're doing right. because you care about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's a good parenting advice as a parent myself. I should, I should <laughs> take that on. <laughs> um, dad's wisdom. It is. It is it's good wisdom with, with the, uh, the work that you're doing at Grist, mm-hmm. um, especially on climate, have you found any particular issue or way of writing or storytelling that seems to connect with the reader or the public the most? Yeah, I cover a fairly like broad, uh, fairly broad issues. Um, one that I found really resonates pe- with people is culture. Um, Yeah. So I write these culture stories that are sometimes related to, you know, um, like books that have come out or, you know, popular shows. I often find like popular Netflix shows, like people are really into this. Um, but like last, I'm totally, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So last year I did sort of like a climate change analysis of Bo Burnham's inside, like his, his 
comedy, his depressing comedy special, mm. where he made all these references to climate change throughout. And I was like, is Bo Burnham joking about the climate apocalypse or not? Um, so a lot of people were really interested in that, at least in terms of like views and how, how long people read the story. Um, I wrote a piece about the great British baking show a couple years ago, um, because I know it's, it's like so soothing to watch, right. Until you like see how all of their desserts are melting because they're baking these things outside in a hundred degree temperatures. And so I did this analysis of, I mean, just like, you know, casual analysis of, you know, how temperatures in the UK, like summer temperatures had increased and was like, you know, global warming is ruining the great British baking show for me because all I can feel Mm. is like stressed out about all these like ice cream desserts that are turning into disasters in these heat waves. Um, yeah. (laughs) I like that. It's the, um, people have kind of strange tastes or values sometime about like what's important to them. And Mm -hmm. maybe you can connect with them on climate with these kind of obscure connections like like you're saying I, I've mm-hmm. I have found that too um I did something in the past where I connected um the idea of systems thinking and sustainability as part of that uh to the Mandalorian where mm. I was always quoting lines from the the Disney plus show the Mandalorian like this is the way right and in hopes and I don't know like you know, I didn't get any great fan mail about it, but in hopes mm-hmm. that it's connecting other things that people care about to a very important topic so that maybe to keep that other thing that they care about going, they invest their time in some climate action, maybe. Right. Yeah. It's, I, I never, I don't finish culture stories and think like, this is going to change the world. You know, when I write about like, <laughs> the environmental impact of twilight series and like how it changed forks washington and like the history of logging there but i mean i do think it's an interesting connection for people um and one of the other themes that i found maybe on like a slightly more serious note that resonates people with people is um the idea of like responsibility and the environment Um, I've written a few stories about like the idea of the carbon footprint and where that came from and how, you know, it was used by the oil industry at some points to kind of deflect attention from, you know, like the huge emissions that they were causing. And they're like, well, look at your individual carbon footprint. Or um, as I mentioned earlier, like the true cost of economics, that piece is sort of about that too. Like does economics have responsibility to, you know, frame these issues and like a a more balanced way where they're accounting for all of these like costs of climate change that are getting ignored. And then I've even written like a piece or two about the plastic crisis and just, you know, who's responsible for that. Like we focus so much on littering and like what people are doing with their plastic bottles that we're overlooking, like, well, most of this plastic can't even be recycled. And, you know, how, how is it that companies are producing all of this and no one's like, not no one, but that's not getting as questioned as much. Yeah. So there's all these narratives we've created around responsibility that I think are like invisible to a lot of people unless they're pointed out. Um, so I think those can be, those have resonated with people too. Yeah. It aggravates me like the, that type of thing where I'm getting blamed for something I didn't create, right? It's right. Mm-hmm. If I want to en- enjoy life more, right? I might buy this, but I didn't ask for it in this plastic bottle. It's just how it is. But mm-hmm. 
the companies sort of shirk their responsibility onto us uh-huh. to take care of it. Right. And it's not like, oh, I don't have any individual responsibility. It's just that, that of course, right. it's like, because that, you know, narrative is like so widely understood. I think people feel like they have to push back against it to like, you know, kind of even things out. And then in pushing back against it, it becomes this like either this or that when it's like, like responsibility is like spread everywhere in different mm-hmm. amounts. And we just need to like, you know, <laughs> we, we don't need to just point fingers. We need to like find uh, better ways of I'm structuring answer, society right? and living our lives. Yeah. You know, and, and thinking about that, of course, designers make things, design educators teach designers how to make things. And I think there's a certain power and responsibility that designers have here at the same time, like they, they're working for a client, they're working for a company or an agency, and, you know, they're being asked to create things that are littered or are, are in our oceans or clogging the landfill. And um, that, that education in the design classroom might um, be kind of a misshapen cog in the machine in the future where, you know, maybe we can be part of like the change in, in uh, knowing more, right? If we know mm-hmm. more, we can be that sort of liaison between the client and the manufacturer to say, let's not use this. That's not good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we that's... know it first, right? Right. And I, I worked on this piece uh, last year that some like psychologists and behavioral scientists had come up with this idea of subtraction. Um, they call it subtraction, but there was a paper in Nature about it. And essentially it's the idea that, you know, people will overlook the option of like getting rid of elements. Um, and instead they'll like want to add new ones. There's sort of that impulse behind like, you know, build back better. Right. It's like uh, from a design standpoint, we're always thinking of like, how can we improve things? And there's like, well, you're forgetting about the easiest option, which was like, we, which is, we can just take these things away. Um, so yeah, some of the, the people I spoke to for that talked about um like as far as climate change goes like we could be removing highways we can take cars out of like city centers and redesign them around you know other interests like you know people um or you know seawalls or concrete pavement like these are things that are uh maybe could be replaced by you know like more natural features that are more like sponge-like that can absorb water and you know trees and dunes on coastlines and all these things that are so there's like a, there's a sense of, um, I think also like thinking about what, what we can take away that sometimes gets ignored. I think so too. And I, I related back to, um, my, I think it was my like first year in art school where mm-hmm. I learned that I could draw with an eraser by, by oh. taking away. Right. Uh-huh. And that kind of stuck with me. And so I've always been kind of interested in that idea of reduction, or Mm -hmm. removing so this that's inspiring to me to think about it a a grander scale like let's not build a new building to solve this problem let's remove something from the landscape to solve the problem yeah it was this the idea for subtraction actually came from one of the researchers i talked to was like playing legos with his son and was you know they were going to build a bridge or something like that 
and he like turned around to grab a piece to put on top. And then he realized like his son had already fixed the problem by just taking <laughs> off a block. It's like, whoa, I hadn't That's thought awesome. of that. <laughs> like, I wonder if there's something here where like people's brains are, you know, predisposed to add things instead of taking them away. So I think so. Cause I think we're fascinated with, wow, look at what I can do. Right. And yeah, made this, it's a new thing as opposed to like what you described, like I removed this one thing and solved the problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost similar to what we were talking about with social media where like everyone's trying to weigh in with their individual thought that can spread. And it's right. like, sometimes it's better to just leave the thought unspoken. <laughs> I agree with that. It's uh, anyway, social media is a whole other, a whole other topic. that. <laughs> could, um, yeah. We, yeah. Uh, well, I'm really interested in, in why I brought you on here today was, mm -hmm. you know, you write, you tell stories about climate. I'm curious as an educator, specifically in design, how I can use um, not just your articles in my classroom, but, but what you've learned through your work in climate in the design classroom. Do you, do you have any um, ideas about that? Um, like for projects that you could work on projects. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. We just, we do projects. Um, yeah, well, I, I have some ideas. I might, I might need to launch to a little background first. That's fine. Um, but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is sort of what motivates people to take action. Um, and I think it's a really, you know, kind of hot topic in climate change circles. And it's also, a difficult question because people respond differently to different things. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I found is that sort of the overall balance of stories that exist about climate change are very much on like the doom side of things. Like these are the bad things that will happen. These are the bad things that are happening now. And, you know, there are stories that are looking more at like solutions and like people grappling with this, but um, just that I find that the balance is off. Yeah. And I see that too. Yeah. And one of the um there's this sort of interdisciplinary neuroscientist who I've talked to a couple of times called Krista Meyer, who is really interesting ideas about, you know, like looking at research showing what motivates people to take action. And a lot of the research in climate change communication has like focused on this idea that, you know, we need to like use emotions as levers to get people to act like, oh, we need to inspire fear in people with these stories about doom, or, you know, we need to, to make people feel hope so that they will be inspired to do something. Um, and one thing that, you know, Krista Meyer has found in research more broadly, not just related to climate change is that like action actually inspires behavior. So Whoa. like, or action inspires like, yeah, people to, <laughs> to act. Right. Which when is they see, kind it, they see it, they they act. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like once you, yeah, once you think of yourself as a vegetarian, it's suddenly like, oh, like I, I of course I don't eat meat. You know, it's like okay. this sort of switch of, you know, seeing things in front of you, seeing people take action. Um, so I'm I'm trying to focus more on like those social things. Um, but one thing, and this is what comes back to your design question that Krista Meyer talked about is that there's sort of this like laundry list of how to take action that people refer to where, where they'll say, um, you know, you should go to a protest, you should eat less meat, you should bike instead of drive. And that, uh, 
this is like, these are all really often really hard things for people to do. And like, there's sort of this endless laundry list, endless laundry list. That's really overwhelming to people. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't grapple at all with like, what if I have to drive because I live in rural Indiana and like there aren't, there isn't good infrastructure or, you know, all of these things. And so Krista Meyer talked about how we need like recipes for taking action. And so this is kind of an out of the box design idea. I, I really love cooking. So maybe I just love the recipes baking. for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I love the, the idea of like this metaphor of recipes for action that have these actual in-depth like steps. So, um, I guess it could be something like, you know, your students could interview someone they know that's like changed something in their life, like a habit or something else because of climate change or sustainability or, you know, some other cause. And then they could ask them about, you know, what were all the ingredients that made this possible? Like, what were all the steps, what were all the steps involved in, you know, changing this habit? And like, what were the parts that were hard? And then they could like take that and format it and design a recipe. Like here are the ingredients for, (laughs) for, you know, how to change an unsustainable habit. Like here are the steps, here are these like tips and recipe notes. And I mean, I think it'd be interesting because like, you know, these are focused on individual responsibility, like these questions of like, oh, I need to fly less or things like that. Um, but they're also, I think, you know, with like driving and need and other things, I think people will discover that there's these like systematic issues that like underlie these that, you know, the way that the world is designed right now makes it really hard. If like not impossible for people to do the right thing that we're always talking about that they should do. Um, so I think it could be kind of inspiring to see like how people have overcome these obstacles in reality. Um, because I mean, you know, I think the reality is that like people who are relatively well off in the world will have to change a lot of things about their lifestyle in the coming years. And it's like, we need, we need more, more information about how to actually do this and more incentives to actually, you know, make it happen. Yeah. I think we do. Cause if the pandemic is any insight into that, right. People don't like being told what to do, right. The mm-hmm. wear a mask. <laughs> and right. there was like a nearly a, a, like a violent revolt against that. And mm-hmm. we need to have a better way of telling people what to do without them making them feel like they're being told what to do, to be a part of the kind of collective action that's necessary. Mm-hmm. That's been my like takeaway from the past two years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think it's like, how do we make these changes in a way that's not, that doesn't come across as a sacrifice to people. And like maybe another project idea would be, you know, like take a city block that exists and like, how do you design it in ways that, both are like good for the climate and would also make people like happier and healthier, like do research on like mental health and, you know, uh, happiness and health. And, you know, how does this, how can you like design a city to maximize happiness and address climate change at the same time? Like you could look at like driving, like driving, walking, biking, like community factors, and just like take the city block and like subtract things and add things and, make like, make it a car free zone. I don't know. There's like a lot of options for, for how, I I don't know that that would take some work, but that would be kind of fun. Well, that's what the students need to do. They they need to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, let's take a break here for um, a few commercial messages and then we'll be right back. 
take your industrial design career to the next level? For over 50 years, the Industrial Designer Society of America has worked to advance the practice of industrial design and enrich the professional lives of members. Join IDSA today for professional development and continuing education for each stage of your career, exclusive discounts on events and award programs, access to members-only content, community leadership opportunities, and much more. Go to idsa.org slash J-O-I-N for more information and use code J-O-I-N 25 to save $25 on a new professional membership. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation, and how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Well, welcome back, uh, everybody. Um, still here with Kate Yoder. And uh, we're going to be talking more now about some of the themes that I was hope, hoping to address here in, in the second season, and that is uh, dealing with um, storytelling and voices that need to be part of the action for our climate crisis. So, Kate, I'm, I'm interested in, in as a, a storyteller yourself uh, and, and a reporter working in climate, what do you think needs to be done differently in journalism, in the media, or... Uh, just how the people who are knowledgeable in this area are talking to the public about that, uh, the necessary actions that we need to take. I think that we definitely need to hear more stories of action and more stories of solutions, um, which are definitely present. Like there's stories, um, you know, looking at, at these topics, but they often just in the overall balance of things, aren't really like what's getting through to people or are just mm -hmm. underrepresented. Um, I don't think it's like, oh, we shouldn't tell stories about all the bad things that are happening and that will come because I think that needs to be there. Yeah. They need um, yeah, we need to know, but I do think there needs to be sort of more of a roadmap of um, how people are talking about like what needs to change and also what's already changing because I think there's always a sense of like, we'll never have done enough on climate change because we're already at this point where the climate has changed and, and things are bad or <laughs> like, yeah. but the question, you know, the question is really like how catastrophic does it get? And, you know, the fact is we've already avoided some of like the, the very like worst off catastrophic scenarios. And I don't think people really talk well, about that. News. Yeah, no, we need to talk about that, that we avoided oh. like, <laughs> apocalyptic <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like we still might have the apocalypse, but at least like less of one. You know what right, I mean? Okay. And like, be apocalypse if, if you're not, yeah, if you're not acknowledging, like, wow, renewable prices have come down, and like, yeah, you know, like there's this wholesale like change in the industry, like around sustainability, even though there's still a lot of greenwashing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's just um, there needs to be more of an acknowledgement of the good things that are happening, or else people will think that nothing is happening and that you know, the work that they've already done isn't making a difference. Yeah. Have you found like, um, with action oriented, um, writing or examples, mm-hmm. have you found any that really inspired you to change actions or habits that you've, you've done or you, you have as a person? Hmm. That's a good question. Cause I was thinking about it yeah. too. Like personally, like what have I changed based on what I, I know I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think often for, for people, the easiest things to change are the ones that you're like somehow already predisposed to do. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, I never liked meat that much. So becoming vegetarian yeah. was easy. Driving made me super anxious. So I moved to a city where I don't need to own a car and can take public okay. transit almost everywhere I need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are like the easy things to change. And then the hard parts are like things that don't come naturally to you. Like I'm not naturally an activist, but I like, we'll go to a protest occasionally, but I think there's a sense of like, you know, you need your friends to like, to bring you along with you in that. Yeah. (laughs) Because like, yeah. uh Like different people have different strengths. And I think we really need to lean into those. I think introverts Um, are tougher to get out there like myself on the on the protest line. <laughs> yeah. You might've guessed I'm an introvert already, but just like crowds <laughs> yes, of people in generally, you, yeah. yeah. Crowds of people in generally in general, like that, that makes me a little anxious. So, you know, it's not like I, I wouldn't do it, but I definitely need a push. Right. <laughs> yeah. That friend. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking to like your, the idea of action, like action examples mm-hmm. um, for me, it's hard to think of one because I think I've, been doing it for so long i just sort of consider it like hey this is just my habit now Mm -hmm. Um, but the one like tiny tiny thing which probably is a big thing is just like energy conservation i Mm. I saw friends you know investing in better refrigerator as an example or Mm -hmm. i'm a homeowner so um i knew people who were doing better insulation in their attics as an example. And mm-hmm. I thought it's going to cost me a little bit of money, but I feel like I'm going to save some money and Hey, it's a double whammy. Cause I can also reduce my carbon emissions of my home. So, mm-hmm. so anything around energy, I think I've been very action oriented on. Mm. That's yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and- I, I wonder if it had to do with like money too. Cause I think it was like, yeah, I was convinced already from the environmental side. And then that money saving side was the other side of it was like, so sealed the deal. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's interesting how sort of like incentives and habits play into the, the decisions we make. Like if action is means like exerting willpower every time you like, encounter a stake like that's going to be really difficult yeah (laughs) you know like i think i think it's like you know having the right incentives there and having habits built up where you're not thinking about it like that's the place we need to get to right 
Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking more now about this because I remember like doing some volunteer work. That's another thing that's action oriented for me is that Mm -hmm. I saw people volunteering and I'm like, okay, I'll volunteer. It was a little, Mm -hmm. I needed a push, but I Mm -hmm. did. And I was doing more like um, letter writing and and texting, text bases, what are they called? Mm -hmm. Text banks. Right. It was all about climate and they were telling me like, never mention climate change, but talk about the other benefits of the action. So you will save $300 a, a year doing this or, or something like that, because their, their research showed that the more you talked about the other benefits of making a climate action, that they were, other people would be more inclined to also do it. But if you mm-hmm. just mention like you'll reduce your greenhouse gases, which is somewhat like vague and you don't really see that happening. <laughs> right. Um, it's not as much of an incentive. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think the ways that we can make, you know, climate action. It's like for, for certain, for some people, like that is enough. And for mm-hmm. other people for political reasons or financial reasons or whatever, they need different incentives. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's important to talk about those too. Yeah. It's like, what about me? What am I getting out of this? Yeah. <laughs> You'll live longer maybe. So yeah. Uh, the other thing that has been um, on my mind since uh, for a while and, and came up last season was not just about telling the story of climate change, but mm-hmm. a little bit of the rebranding of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering what your thoughts about that is. Uh, do you think we need to do that? And if so, how, how would rebrand climate change? I think that's like the million dollar question, right? Yeah, it is. is. (laughs) I will say, well, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I cover language and terminology and like linguistics is one of my favorite subjects. Um, I mean, I think the key here is that you're going to reach different people with different messages. So it really depends what you want to accomplish. Like, I think, you know, the term climate justice, for, for example, has like emerged in recent years. And I think that really speaks to like, progressives and marginalized groups and you know it's sort of this activist side that's like about the green new deal and yeah you know has this sort of like imagining how do we like structure society better and tackle climate change at the same time um but on the other hand if you like say tree equity or like climate justice to like a republican politician they're going to be like uh i need to tell fox news about this <laughs> so that we can run a segment to like make yeah. you look crazy Um, so it's like, I've looked at, um, for example, red states that have passed climate legislation, like actual legislation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, you're a lot better using a word like extreme weather or, you know, looking at, you know, how do we increase economic opportunity for, you know, renewable, like renewable businesses and all these other questions where you're, you know, you're reframing like it's it's still a true framing of the situation that like yeah we need to com- we need to prepare communities for extreme weather but it's one that like will be a lot more likely to pass in like you know yeah. Georgia or <laughs> Utah or all these other places yeah i i do think that you know i've done some research on like the terms climate crisis and climate emergency which have been popping up in more recent years and I mean, there was like some initial research that showed like maybe this like is, you know, gets people more like interested. And, you know, I think the the idea behind it is like 
we need to tell like a fairer, this is like a fairer account of what's actually happening. Whereas global warming has been criticized for sounding too nice and climate change has been criticized for, you know, sounding even better than global warming. Cause it's like kind of mm-hmm. neutral, like, Oh, it's just changing. It's always been changing. It's fine. It's fine. Like that was used by, you know, like the George Bush administration, yeah, like say, intentionally. Wasn't, wasn't that George uh-huh. Bush, one of his like advisors, yeah, Frank Luntz. Don't say global warming. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. him. Yeah, and Frank Luntz actually has, now he has recommendations for like how climate communicators should should actually talk like to, to help people care. So it's interesting he's sort of <laughs> come around. Yeah, he did like a 180 or something on that. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, so the research on like climate crisis and climate emergency like the, the most recent study I've seen about it shows that it really didn't make much of a difference, which I think is important to remember. Like if we're rebranding climate change, we can't just change the name of it and expect people to right. like suddenly act differently or suddenly take it more seriously. Um, I do think that if it, if it was like a wide scale change or everyone was talking about climate change as if it were a crisis, not just saying climate crisis, you know, I think that could create a change in people. Um, and there's definitely like different connotations. There was one study showed that news organizations that use the word climate emergency in their pieces were seen, um, as less credible by readers, maybe because they were seen as less biased or as more biased or something like that. So yeah, there are like a lot of, you know, small things that happen when you use a particular word, just because of its color and connotation or, you know, political associations, but, um, overall, I think that in terms of how do we rebrand climate change, I think it's just talking more about the specifics of what you're trying to accomplish as the climate movement. Um, we, so we so often say like, Oh, address climate change. And like, what does that really mean? It's so broad. Are you trying to stabilize the climate? Are you trying to like protect your community from extreme weather? One of my pet peeves, and this is because I come from a pacifist background, but I hate the war on climate change. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's really broad. I think it doesn't really make sense because you can't fight climate change. Like you need to work with the climate, right? You're going to lose if you fight it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're, you're going to lose against the climate. (laughs) So yeah, instead talking about like, you know, we're trying to keep the planet habitable for everyone or you know, just like stating the actual goal, like what you want to see and not just like climate change is bad, you know, address it. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea of like the goal, like where, what kind of world do you want? Right. Yeah. Just like naming your vision. I like that. What kind of world do you want? Yeah. And that, that definitely brings up the topic of who gets to say what world we want. Right. And right. Mm-hmm. there's a lot of voices left out of the conversation historically on this. And mm-hmm. um, there definite is definitely is a need for those most affected, those marginalized um, in, in our world to have a voice and you know, on, on the climate movement. And I'm kind of stuck on how to make sure that we get more people like those who haven't had their voices heard, heard mm-hmm. thoughts about or solutions to in- increase the amount of people in in the movement or have their voices be heard more. Hmm. 
I don't know. I think it's a really hard question because it's, it's like totally hard. It's who who is doing the inviting? Like exactly. How do you, you know, it's like maybe these conversations are already happening in, and and we you know, don't know. Yeah, and you just yeah. don't know. And like maybe it's maybe it's if people are asking these questions, I would I would I would say like maybe you need to ask questions first and like you know hear what communities are really grappling with or kind of meet people where they're at. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think the, the question of inviting is hard because that it be like assumes that too. there's like a group and then that there's outsiders. And it's like, how do we move these yes. outsiders? It's like, maybe we need to move toward the outsiders or, <laughs> you know, I, I do think too, that just like, uh, I mean, I think having a broad coalition is really good, but there's often a lot of divisions within a coalition and of course it's just hard to, you know, you, you can't like appease everyone at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, making the, the planet more livable helps everybody. So like, how do you, how do you do that? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, I do, yeah. You're so right on that too. Cause like the word invitation means it's like your party, come on over. Yeah, like right? RSVP, please. <laughs> right. Join us. Yeah. We cause the problems. Mm-hmm. But come on over. Yeah. And help us solve, fix our mess. Yeah. I, I think as, as far as invitations that are helpful, it's like not only do, you know, like underrepresented, uh, not only do underrepresented, sorry, that word, not only do <laughs> underrepresented groups, you know, uh, not be need to be invited into more conversations, but it's like be invited into conversations where these decisions are actually getting made about like right. local policy. And, you know, one of my coworkers wrote a piece about like indigenous voices at the UN and how you not just be present at the UN, but actually be like a key part of the decision-making process. And so I think that, you know, younger people, like indigenous people, people with disabilities, all of these groups, you know, they need to be part of the decision-making process at like all levels of policymaking um, because that's, you know, where they can actually have the most sway. Yeah. So I think when, in that perspective, like those who are at that table, we'll call it a table, yeah, decision-makers need to flex their power, I guess, and invite, there's the word again, I don't mean to say invite, but yeah. to, to bring those people at, to your level. Right. Yeah, they can be elected. They can. Yeah, I don't. I don't know exactly how it would work, but it needs to happen, right? <laughs> it does. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure. Yeah, that out. that's this season. Yeah, we're gonna figure that out somehow. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then yeah, as far as I mean, in our personal lives, I know like social science research has showed has shown that at least on like people's opinions about climate change, the people that they're closest to, like their friends and family, have the most sway over like what they think and what they do. Um, so I'd say sort of like, if you want to make a difference and, and reach out to people, like focus on your friends and family and your local community, like people you already have a connection with and mm-hmm. have some like shared understanding and rapport. Um, and just like, you know, don't like belittle people who don't think like you do, like ask questions. <laughs> I know like there are a lot of environmental movement slogans that like I kind of cringe at, like, I mean, listen to the science is one of them because it's like almost used as a weapon. Like it is I listen to the science and like you don't, and it like reinforces these divisions instead of like, 
asking questions like, where does your skepticism come from? Or like, how can, you know, like kind of getting to the root of these issues, which are, you know, really like really hard to overcome in such a polarized environment, unless, you know, like focus on the people in the middle or the people who are concerned, but not acting, you know, it's going to be really hard to try to convince someone who's like, you know, hardcore, it's part of their identity to deny climate change. Like there's probably not a ton of headway you can make there, but you can make headway with other people. Do you feel it's valuable still to try to reach out to those people that you mentioned that it's just like part of their values? Like we are going to say, no, we're not going to take part in this movement. I think so. I mean, there's always room for things to change, right? Like the Republican Party is, you know, slowly, very slowly coming around to climate change on at least certain issues. Um, I think it's important not to see, not to see identity as like set in stone because it can change. Yeah. Um, But also if you're just looking at like, in terms of bang for your buck, in terms of effort, that's maybe not the place to start. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Very low yield in the end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh No, I I agree with that. I, I, I still have hope for everyone feeling that um, they can be part of the, a solution to a problem that is happening right in front of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's always like, maybe if you don't use the word climate change, you can still, like it can still work. (laughs) I think there's some truth to that. And I, I learned that from being part of that volunteer project I was on yeah yeah Uh well we're almost uh, out of time here but I wanted to you you kind of answered this question and it's one of my favorite questions to get an an answer from because you're you're not teaching design like I am and so I think we get trapped in our own heads about what we should do and I think having fresh eyes on what we're teaching in the classroom or how we're teaching mm-hmm. can always help. So that's, that's why I asked this question. And that mm-hmm. um, if you were teaching um, a design class or a project around climate or action, um, what would, what would you teach? What would be your scenario that you would work with the students on? Um, like as a project or as a like yeah, lesson plan back to the as pro- a project. Well, it could, okay. be, it could be a whole class. It could be a whole class. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. Okay. If I were to teach a whole class, I think it would be on, you know, what really motivates people to take action. Cause I think there's a lot of widespread ideas we have about what actually, why actually people take action that are just misplaced and wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And I mean, starting with the idea that, you know, more information will like convince people like, oh, if you just learn more bad things about climate change, then like maybe, maybe then you'll, you'll do all, take all of these steps to change your life. (laughs) As, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's behavior is a lot more complicated than that. And we really need to look into like social dynamics, peer pressure, like how peer pressure can be used for good. Um, Mm -hmm you know, like using, is using emotion like fear or anger or hope as a way to motivate change. Does that really work? Or is that just something we've been talking a lot that, you know, like maybe an emotional response comes when you've already, once you've already taken action or, you know, there are all these questions that I think need to be like investigated more thoroughly. 
Um, and as far as specific projects, I, I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, recipe cards for action, you know, interviewing people like who, have, yeah, who recipe cards for action, people who have made some change in their life, uh, like someone that, you know, preferably who can like really tell you all the obstacles they face to, you know, install solar panels on the roof or <laughs> anything like that to kind of highlight both how, you know, what are the specific ingredients that are needed? What are, you know, all of the steps involved? Um, what, what tips do people have that, you know, you can do that, like what blog people do where they write like a whole backstory to the recipe before you can finally even read what it is. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways to go about designing a recipe for action, but just making sure that instead of like a laundry list of like go to a protest, um, you know, <laughs> all, all this whole long list of things that there's like specific steps that, that people are taking that kind of illuminate like the broader, like systemic problems that are preventing most people from doing these things, even if they want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially with like, um, like you said, specific things. So um, mm -hmm. a specific thing may not require you to go to a protest, but there could, like you said, right. there's a recipe that can, you can follow to do that one, one particular action. Uh -huh. And someone like me would be more excited about doing that since I don't have, I, don't, I can just stay home and do it. Right. I can do something. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not all of us need recipes, but we all need like recipes for something, I guess. Yeah. No, if that I makes mean, sense. I also think from like the design perspective, it's an effective project because the designer is organizing one of this, one of the things that we do and mm -hmm. they're going to have to organize a lot of information and distill it into what are the core things Mm -hmm. This other stuff is important, but no, what is this, these core bits to the recipe and obviously mm -hmm. working with an, someone who is an expert in that would need to happen. Right. But right. Mm -hmm. that's a really good, um, skill for the designer. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of a challenge parts. too, right? It's like yeah. open-ended, like, how do you, how do you turn this into a recipe? It's like, uh, I don't know. I'll need to think about that, but and I don't know. It's it intriguing. Like? Is it a recipe? Yeah. Book? Is it a, re you know, what is this recipe? Called? Mm -hmm. Just like one of my mom's handwritten recipe cards <laughs> that like goes in the recipe box to be, you know, oh pulled out. <laughs> yeah. My mom had that too. Yeah. Now I can even card. go like retro. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of options. Yeah. I don't think I could, I couldn't read cursive very well. So like it was never good for me to read my mom's <laughs> recipe guides. That she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> something about the character of hand handwritten yeah, recipe. No, yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's the thing that um I had to learn cursive. I'm I'm a Gen X. I don't know what where you fall in there, but I had to learn cursive in school, mm. but I was never good at reading it. Mm. My mom's was a lot more loopy, right? And I don't know. I see. Yeah, everyone has their individual cursive. I, I'm a millennial and I learned cursive in school too, but did you? It, yeah, it takes me, I can read it. It just take, takes me a little while to parse, you know? Yeah. So what does these recipe cards for action look like? That's a perfect mm -hmm. title for a project too, like recipe cards for action. Yeah. You, I'm glad you, you like it. One. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kate, it's been an honor to talk with you today. Um, uh, I appreciate all the work you're doing at Grist. It's, it is important, even if you don't get tons of fan mail about it. I, I know people are reading it like me. Maybe I should have been 
sending you some letters of support, but um, <laughs> people are reading your work and, and I know it's doing some good. Yeah, same to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Looking forward to all the fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is written, produced, and engineered by me. Design by Bashul Rashik and Mark O'Brien, with music by Casual Motive. Next week on Climify, we're joined by Sadie Redwing, a Lakota designer based out of Ontario, Canada. Sadie's work is in indigenous design knowledge, decolonization, and traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK. Yeah, I um, I'm, I, I want to go a little bit more deeper in talking about regenerate or regeneration, land yeah. regeneration, soil regeneration, because what I'm what, what I'm wanting to do is to bring more terminology on reciprocity mm. into design spaces. And I hope I'm not wrong saying this is that in the community of design, it was a, it is still a huge trend to get everybody on board with DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right, right. And I think we're progressing in there where we're getting more inclusive in these spaces. And I, when I say, I'm hope I'm not wrong saying that the next trend coming up is, well, we got a, we got a solid team now. Now the next challenge is how to be more eco-friendly, how to be sustainable. And I think in thinking about preparing for those conversations that are coming up, this is where indigenous knowledge can excel. It may not excel in other trending aspects, but we are definitely gonna be needed in any conversation around land regeneration. Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.